0: Well, take that Bible this morning or turn that Bible on. (laughs) We're in John chapter 3. You know, you can't say, hey, turn in your Bible. I mean, some of you just turn your Bible on, and I think that's fair. But we're in John chapter 3. And the last weeks, we have established clearly the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of the new birth. The doctrine in John chapter 3 regarding being born again. And Jesus, in John chapter 3, emphatically told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. In fact, look at 3.3. He said to him there, answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus, again, if you look in your Bible in three five, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you can't see the kingdom of God in 3. You can't enter the kingdom of God in 5, in essence, to say the same thing. And then Jesus said in chapter 3, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And so as we looked at those scriptures, as I pick them up as an expositor of the Bible, clearly then, in 3, 1 through 10, the focus was on the divine initiative of our sovereign God in regeneration. Five different times in 3, 1 through 10 is that phrase born again used. And it either means, as I mentioned, born again or to be born from above five different times. And we clearly saw that the miraculous, sovereign work of God in regeneration is monergistic, to which we said it means that it is an act of God in which man is passive, where he makes alive God the Father and God the Spirit the soul of an individual, the soul of a dead sinner. This is undeniable in the Scripture. We are born from above. We are born again. It's a sovereign work. God alone does it. Man is passive. God regenerates the sinner. And we laid out, did we not, that dead people can't respond to God. And so it is a singular work of God, a divine miracle. Jesus established that salvation in John chapter 3 is a sovereign work of God. We cannot argue against that. Jesus was unmistakably clear. But it begs the question, if God is sovereign, and he is, then why evangelize? In fact, you could even ask the question, if God is sovereign and he is, then why pray? If God is sovereign and indeed he is, then why send Christine and Corey all the way to uh, the most, you know, depleted country in the world called Albania? The poorest country in all of Eastern Europe. Why go there if he is... Sovereign indeed. Those are the questions. And then I'm going to ask you Does a strong belief in God's sovereignty undermine and hinder man's responsibility to evangelize? That really is the essence of the dilemma that I'm posing to you. Does a strong belief in the sovereignty of God undermine and hinder your responsibility to evangelize? What's fascinating is look down in your Bible. As you come to verse 11, it's not the first place, but I'm going to focus it on here. You'll know, you might not be able to see this just reading this. But in 311, he says there, does Jesus truly, truly, I say to you. Now, you can underline the you if you want. We tend to think that he's obviously talking to Nicodemus, though after verse 9, Nicodemus goes silent, the rest of the text. But when he says, I say to you, fascinating, that the you there is not singular to Nicodemus. In the original language, it's plural. So that as Jesus begins to articulate beyond the new birth in 11 through 21 of chapter 3, The you goes beyond Nicodemus. It goes to anybody listening. It's plural. That would include the Jewish leadership. That would include, I would think, the disciples that are listening to this conversation. And that would include you this morning as his listeners, as his readers. Jesus said, I say to you. Now, what's fascinating for me, uh, just in my study the last couple weeks, is that as you come... To verses eleven through twenty one, the key word switches. We switch from to be born again to the main truth that emerges in three eleven through twenty one is the word believe. Believe. You're looking as a Bible teacher for key words, and the word believe comes out, and the scope opens up of this call to believe. To everyone. So though God is sovereign in his selection, we see that in scripture. The command of the gospel goes out to all. And certainly you know this, but let me highlight these scriptures. Look at chapter 3 in verse 15. Chapter 3 in verse 15. These are some tremendous scriptures. Back in 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, Verse 15: that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, in other words, that gospel is going to extend, if you will, to whoever believes. Glance down in your scripture, certainly you understand this in John three: sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that here it is again: whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, it's opened, is it not? He's not just addressing the elect there. He's not just addressing the redeemed or the regenerated. Whoever believes, if you glance down in your Bible at chapter 3, verse 18, very clearly we think here again speaking, it says whoever believes in him is not condemned, comma, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Impetus put there on man's responsibility. If you glance down to the end of the chapter, in chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And very fascinating set of words here. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, if you don't obey, the wrath of God is abiding on that particular person. So, beloved, from 311 through 21, seven different times our Lord uses the word believe. It's enough for me to say that the new birth is appropriated by an act of faith, so on the one hand god 's salvation is absolutely and totally a sovereign work of God on our behalf right we 're not arguing that on the other hand, you have a, a, a here a call that goes out to believe you have in the scripture a human responsibility. To respond to the gospel itself. In fact, we know at this point that that is John's theme of his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31. These things have be, are written so that you may what believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He writes evangelistically. Now, the reformers, a little history for you... Um, called this belief sola fide, by faith alone. And because yesterday was Reformation Day, I thought I could throw this one in, okay? Because one writer put it that if you go back to the 16th and 17th century, there was a clarification of the gospel when the Reformation happened. And part of that whole history on that Reformation is a day called Reformation Day. That day happened on October 31st, okay, 1517, when Luther nailed what the 95 Thesis to the door of that church in Germany. The Reformation was born. It was 95 theses that he gave. Out of that, we call that Reformation Day. We ought to redeem that, right? I know I, I was with some of our young people briefly last night. They had a whole event in Western Town. I know the Brandons had people over. We hence call that the, the Ref, Reformation Day. And it affirmed the what we call the five solas. Number one, it affirmed the sola scriptura, you know scripture alone is over against the catholic church they affirmed that there's uh, only one divine revelation did the reformers and it's scripture alone sola scriptura not what is stated, if you will, ex cathedra by the Pope. It is not the product of church councils. It is not the collective magisterium of the Roman Catholic tradition. Those are not divine. Those are not inspired. Those are not authoritative revelations. And so they penned, as, as this movement went, sola scriptura. And we believe that. It's the scripture alone. In fact, I caught myself even just praying as we just sang, Christ is enough. I'm praying for all the wayward young men that I know. Because Christ is enough. His scripture is enough to bring these young men to himself. They don't need anything else. They need the scripture. That is one of the solas there. Then came to sola Christus, if you will. Mary is not co-redemptrix. There is only one Christ. Christ alone, he's the only savior salvation is but not by is is not by grace and works it's by grace alone that would be sola gratis if you gratia and it is appropriated again not by works or any effort of man and then it leads to fourthly sola fide which is what we'll address today that is by faith alone and then finally there is sola de gloria that the glory of god alone and whenever time you pick up Reformation literature, you will see those, but we're addressing this issue here of sola fide by faith alone, and I clearly taught that this summer, and this doctrine became obviously the focal point of the Reformation. Salvation comes to us by faith alone, not faith plus works, and this theme emerges in 3.11 through 21, but it brings us back to a dilemma. Dilemma. Not so much a dilemma in the text, but in our understanding of the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility in salvation and maybe even our responsibility to evangelize. And I've been watching this as I've gone in the text. And then last week, we've got a brilliant question in the membership class. And the question, in essence, was this. Does God's sovereignty dismiss man's responsibility i mean if we just so taught that and we did and by the way our elders wrestled on that before you even were in a chair here i mean these are doctrines that are in our doctrinal statement and they had to wrestle through these doctrines of god's sovereignty in salvation actually before the church started so that when the church did start we've been clear here but how do we reconcile these doctrines and, and here's why if we don't you will be left wondering as I proceed in John on these doctrines and how they reconcile to each other and so I want to address this so that you might have comfort in the scripture that you might understand this tension in the scripture. Now, beloved, I've stated and I don't really want to review God's sovereignty because we looked at that the last three weeks. We know that God is sovereign, okay? But Jesus clearly holds Nicodemus responsible for his unbelief. This is amazing. Look back down at chapter 3, verse 11. Look what Jesus said to him. He said, truly, I say to you, we speak of that which we know. We bear witness to what we have seen This phrase, but you do not receive our testimony. It's very emphatic there. Jesus telling Nicodemus at this point in his life, you, and I'd have to double check, I'm sure it's in the plural there, you, Nicodemus, and the Jewish leadership and the Jewish nation, do not receive our testimony. Look what he said in verse 12, did Jesus He said there, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He did not believe. Do you remember, beloved, go back to chapter 1. He gives man this responsibility. Do you remember in chapter 1 in verse 11 when it's talking about the incarnation of Christ that he came into his own in 111? And his own people did not, what? Receive him. There is man's responsibility. So as I come to chapter 3, here's what I'm looking at. In one passage, in one chapter, in one gospel, you have the sovereign regeneration of the new birth in which man is passive, but you also have a strong command to believe The gospel from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ side by side. Amazing truths. Man is indeed responsible to respond to the gospel. So on the one hand, God is sovereign and indeed man is responsible. Man, and and I don't know if I should say man, you, okay, second person, you are responsible for the way you listen to the gospel, your obedience to the gospel, and you are responsible for your disobedience to the gospel. And I'll show you in a minute, there's just no evading this. Beloved, the gospel is set forth, if you will, before each as a life and death matter. It is absolutely, without equivocation, the greatest choice that any man will ever face. In fact, what's intriguing to me as I studied is that men and women in the Scripture are repeatedly invited to believe. Repeatedly invited to obey. Repeatedly invited to come to Christ. When I look at the Scripture, man indeed, here's how I would say it, is responsible to his maker. And not only is he responsible, that call goes out. In fact, let me show you. Walk with me in your Bible just for a moment. I'm just going to primarily stay in John. Look at John chapter 4 in verse 13. Jesus said to her, he's talking to the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be Thirsty, verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty. The water I will give him will become in him the spring of water welling up to eternal life. I love that phrase there. Whoever drinks of this water that I give will never be thirsty again. You can tell that to people when you're sharing the gospel to them. Look over at the next chapter in chapter 5 in verse 24. You have statements like this. Truly, truly in 524, Jesus said, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. It couldn't be clearer. It didn't say only the elect who hear my word. Only the regenerated who hear my word, though that would certainly be true. He says here, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus said there in 25, truly, truly, I say an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You have these universal statements. Look over at John chapter 6 in verse 34. They, he's talking on the bread of life. And he said in 634, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said in 635, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In fact, glance down at verse 47 of chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. You have these statements all over the scripture. Look down at verse 54, that hard statement, whoever feeds on my flesh, and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, whoever appropriates the person of Jesus Christ. You see on the one hand that God is sovereign. Here you have man's responsibility to believe the gospel that is given to them. Look what Jesus said on the last day of the feast in John chapter 7. Would you turn there? John chapter 7. And he says it there in verse thirty seven, seven thirty seven. He said the Jews, uh, and, excuse me, in seven thirty seven, on the last day of the feast, the great day. I mean, imagine him doing this. Jesus stood up and cried out, "If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink." Verse thirty eight. Whoever believes in me as the scripture said out of the hearts will flow rivers of living water boy he's giving a call is he not to those who are in the hearing of his voice to trust him to believe him to understand him listen you know how many people and i mean a lot that i've counseled young people in particularly who say pastor I just don't know if I'm God's what? elect. And I usually would say to him, "Hey, that's a real good excuse to live with your girlfriend." I've had a number of people tell me that. "Hey, I'm just not one of the chosen." I'm just not one of the elect, or God just hasn't caused my heart to be born again. I I understand that. It's a work of God. But on the other hand, Jesus standing up, crying out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Look over at John chapter 8, verse 51. He said again, you see this statement in John eight fifty one. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It goes out, does it not? Look over at John chapter 11. John chapter 11 in verse 25. I mean, I'm just staying in John. Obviously, this argument's all over the scripture. Jesus said to her, okay, to Martha, right? To Mary, I am, 1125, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's all over the scripture. One more. John chapter 12, look there. John chapter 12 and verse 24 Jesus said there in that great statement we'll get to that in a few months 11:24 Truly truly I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit verse 25 whoever loves this life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for Eternal life. Verse 26 If anyone serves me, he must follow me. In fact, to not respond to the gospel command is to be condemned to hell. That's what I see. You, anybody, will be judged because of your sin. You are guilty before a holy God. And if you don't repent, then you will incur the judgment of God and die in your sins. That's the teaching of Scripture, okay? Placed side by side with each other, God's sovereign, man is responsible. In fact, J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, everywhere in the Scripture, it is a leading principle that man can lose his own soul that if he is lost, listen to what Ryle said, he is lost at last, and it will be his own fault, and his blood will be on his head. Wow. I mean, I could read that again for emphasis if you want. If he's he's lost at last, it will be his own fault, and his blood will be on his own head. I believe that. you got to respond. You, beloved, Need to respond to the gospel. And the last analysis, it's not a matter of not being elect or not being regenerated. It becomes your own fault. The the same Bible, uh, Ryle said, inspired Bible, which reveals the doctrine of election, is the Bible that contains the words, quote, Why will you die, O house of Israel? You will not come to me that you might have life. I think that ought to be a little bit of our own passion, right? You, that when people don't come, you're, you're pleading with them. Over and over, beloved, in the scripture, man is responsible to his maker. Now, I don't have time to unpack a whole biblical Harmar theology, which is the doctrine of sin, but I can tell you this from John's gospel man is held responsible for desecrating the temple in chapter 2, verse 13. Man refuses in John 3, 19 to come to the light because his deeds are what? Evil, okay? He exposed the woman in chapter 4 that you have rightly said you do not have a husband. For you have what? Five husbands. And the one you're living with is not your, you know, your husband. I mean, he just, he went right after her sin. He told the man in John chapter 5 who had been healed to sin no more that nothing else may happened to you. He rebuked the Jews in John chapter 5 verse 44 for being consumed with their own glory rather than God's. He told the Jewish leadership in John chapter 7 of their murderous hearts. Wow. He told them that they would perish for not trusting in him, John 8:24. In 8:34, he said that the one who practices sin is a slave of sin. In other words, you're, just, you're a slave to your own sin. That's why you won't come. And because Jesus told the truth in John chapter 8, he said, you do not believe me. I told you the truth and you do not believe me. He told the Jewish people, leaders in John eight forty four 44, that they were liars. He told all the people that he talked to in John chapter 9, verse 41, that they had guilt. He said in John 3.36 that if you don't obey me, it will lead you straight to hell. So enough to me to say this to you, beloved. He demands a new birth because of sin. But here the scripture is very clear, such as in John 5.40, that men refuse to come to him that they may be saved. Let me make this statement. The Bible never says that sinners miss heaven because they are not elect but because they neglect so great a uh, salvation. And because they do not repent and they do not believe in the gospel. Packer, in this brilliant book, if you want more of this, you, this is a classic. Take you two hours to read. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. But here J.I. Packer made this statement regarding evangelism. He said evangelism is evangelism is the issuing of a call to turn as well as to trust. He said it is the delivering not merely of a divine invitation to receive a Savior, but it is a divine command to repent of sin. End of quotes. Listen, in the last judgment, it will prove that it is not want of God's election so much as laziness and the love of sin, and unbelief, and an unwillingness to come to Christ, which ruins the souls of those that are lost. And yet, and yet, God is indeed, what? Sovereign. It is God who saves. It is God who brings people to faith in Christ. We are, in evangelism, the instruments but the power that saves is God. And beloved, if we forget that, then we become responsible to secure the salvation of others. If you forget his sovereignty, you begin to think that we can save. You begin to, become, to think that you're the decisive factor in another person's salvation. We would then become very pragmatic, would we not? Very pragmatic, even manipulative, to secure the desired results. And many in their evangelism, have become exactly that, pragmatic and manipulative. Pragmatic is, I'll tell you this, you go to a lot of youth groups, you don't see the Word opened. see a lot of games, a lot of toys, a lot of bells, a lot of whistles. The Word's not open. I don't know what they're thinking. The only way that God's going to open someone's eyes is through the Word of God. And relationships are important, but He's provided His instrument as the Word. But if we ever lose sight of a sovereignty, then we'll become manipulative. Our job, beloved, is to throw the seed, not produce the converts. You need to scatter the seed of the gospel. However, okay, we also need to be sure that in our emphasis on God's sovereignty that we do not come to an exclusive emphasis that is out of balance. And I've met people that are out of balance in sovereignty. And of course, the most famous one is well we sang the song the famous one that's Christ but the most famous example I think from church history was when William Carey had a burning heart to reach people with the gospel in India and he came to his missionary society I don't know somewhere around 1870 And he told him about his desire to reach the heathen in another country. And one of the elderly men on that mission committee back in 1870 or so said to William Carey after listening to his heart, quote, sit down, young man. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Pretty bold, huh? He doesn't need you. When the truth is, I mean, on the one hand, at least the man grasped God's sovereignty. But listen, beloved, he completely missed entire portions of Scripture of the church's responsibility to go into all the world and preach the what? The gospel. Listen, we are never to lessen our urgency or the priority of proclaiming the good news of the gospel And indeed, man is responsible to respond to the gospel and obey the gospel. So now I'm back to the question with you. How do we balance passages that stress God's sovereignty and salvation with other passages that address belief and repentance and a turning away from evil? Do you, uh, we're going to struggle with this, do you reduce the character of God to accommodate human choice? Do you stress human responsibility to such a degree that God becomes subservient to our will? That's one question. Another one would be, how can we boldly declare the new birth, which man is passive, and then hold man responsible to believe or not believe? And here's the ultimate question. I'm trying to drive towards something. How can we harmonize those two truths? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. How do these truths come together? And the answer is, beloved, are you ready? They don't. They don't come together, okay? Okay. You can't, stay with me here, harmonize these truths of sovereignty and responsibility. Listen, you can try. You could become super creative. You can pick only one side of the equation. But as soon as you pick one side of the equation, you become out of balance with the other. And if you emphasize one side of the equation, you destroy the other or even both truths you can't listen change them you can't alter them you can't tamper with them you must believe both of these truths intact you need to believe both truths because both truths are what true now i just took some time to show you john 3 they're both true Only God can redeem, only God can regenerate, only God can take a man dead in his trespasses and sins and make them alive, cause them to be born of the Spirit. Only He can do that. Then you got these other truths all over John where man is fully responsible. What I'm saying is you gotta let him be. You can't harmonize them, you've got to let both of them stand. Let me show you something in John chapter six. I'll show you another paradigm, and there's more. I'm just pointing out a couple. John chapter six. We'll get there in verse 38, but I thought I would share this with you. Here's the two truths set side by side. It's an amazing passage of Scripture, okay? It says this in 638. He says, you, oh, excuse me, I'm in five. But in 638, he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Key, verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. He's going to lose nothing. And the key phrase in 39 is all that he has given me. Listen, I'm telling you, your salvation is so secure that God the Father in the throne room of eternity gave you to his son as a love gift and all that the Father has given to the person of Christ, he, verse 39, shall lose nothing, and he's going to raise it up on the last day. That's why your salvation is secure, because the Father gave you as a love gift to the Son, and you ought to rejoice in that truth. However, look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There they are, side by side. The father's given to the son, a group of people, the elect, and yet here in verse 41, excuse me, 40, everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. Here is an offer of the gospel without distinction. He will certainly save if they believe. So we can say it this way. Christ saves all who trust in him, and he saves all whom the Father has given to him. Now, beloved, listen. I, I'm just telling you, and I'm going to try to help you with this a little bit, but I'm telling you, I don't always get it. I don't. And I'm okay with that, okay? Okay? say, well, Scott, what do you mean you don't get it? I mean, I get it, just as I unpacked it for you. But I'm telling you, I can't always make these truths merge. In fact, MacArthur said this, and he's helped me with this over the years when I've gone to him. He says in here, John 3, and listen to these words. Jesus presents to him, talking to Nicodemus, the twin parallel truths of divine sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility. He said, this is a work of God, solely a work of God, but, comma, you will be held responsible if you don't believe. And you are called to believe and eternal life awaits you if you will believe. Well said. Listen to how he he unpacked this. He said, these are twin truths that run parallel. He said they'll always run parallel. They will never come together. They will never intersect. They will never be diminished legitimately. They are what they are. What are they? They're twin truths. They'll never come together. They'll run parallel, but they'll never intersect. He went on to say this. And I think I need to say this to you, but I'm going to let him speak, okay? Because it's a little edgy, okay? (laughs) He said the fact that you don't understand how they go together only proves that you're less than what you should be. It doesn't say anything about God. He said, your inability to harmonize those things is a reflection of your fallenness, my fallenness. He said, people ask me all the time, how do I harmonize those? My answer is, I don't. (laughs) And I can't. They can't be harmonized in the human mind. He said, but realize this, you are a puny mind. And he said, "And so am I, and collectively, we are puny compared to the infinite, vast, limitless mind of God." He said, "All I can tell you is that in the word of God, these truths run parable parallel, excuse me, and the answer is to believe them both with all your hearts. And the one, divine sovereignty listen, will inform your worship, and the other, human responsibility, will motivate your evangelism. This is good. But I'm okay with that. I want you to be okay with that. Okay? In fact, Grudem put it this way. He said that God causes all things that happen, but he does so in such a way that somehow upholds our ability to make willing Responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results for which we are held accountable. He said exactly how God combines his providential control and our willing significant choices, scripture does not explain to us. He said, but rather, Grudem, than deny one aspect or the other simply because we cannot explain both can be true, how both can be true. We should accept both in an attempt to be faithful to the teaching of all of the scripture. He said both. So listen, one final comment by MacArthur. He says, how can I help you deal with that question? He said, I can't harmonize it. I can't bring it all together. I can't solve your dilemma. I can't answer the apparent paradox. So what am I left with? I want to make you comfortable with your ability to, to not get it. I just want you to be completely happy that you don't get it. <laughs> just put it just puts you to rest. Stop fighting that. He says, I want you to be comfortable with the fact that you might not understand something. And then he finished by saying, I know that's a big pill to swallow because of human pride, but get over it and be content not to get it. It's true. It's true. Listen, understand that the Bible, when it deals with these things, it doesn't always explain itself. In other words, the Bible isn't self-conscious. You don't read that, I know this is really tough to get, You don't have caveats like that. You don't have underlying statements. You don't have efforts to make explanations. These things are stated in Scripture as parallel realities that never really uh, are explained or harmonized because they both exist. And the fact that we can't understand them leaves us with one option, and that is to believe them both and to be content with it. Throughout Scripture, summary here, okay? God is sovereign, and man bears the responsibility and suffers the condemnation for his actions. That's just true. So how does that work together? Well, it's hard to say. They do work together. Spurgeon said this. He said, if then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can never contradict each other. He said, I do not believe, listen to what he said, that they can never be welded, if you will, into one upon any earthly anvil, but they certainly shall be one in eternity They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge. But, he said, they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence whence all truth doth spring. Well said. I mean, these truths, beloved, stand side by side They go together. They are friends, beloved. They are not enemies, okay? And neither of these principles should be taught at the exclusion of the other. And I've been on both of, I've seen people on both sides of that. I've seen some people so rank Arminian that you might as well do all the manipulation you can do to get people to trust Christ. I mean, I just read something the other day and I don't want to be I don't want to act sarcastic, but it said that 11 people raised their hand to receive Christ. Well, only God knows what that means. You can have 11 kids raise their, mind, their hand. I could go today and preach on the doctrine of hell <laughs> at the second hour and scare a lot of young kids, right? But, so you've got to be careful. You don't go so far the other side that you don't recognize any input of the doctrine of regeneration. But beloved, I've been on the other side. Okay, Listen. I've met people who are obnoxious in their Calvinism. I mean, you just—you don't even really want to be around them, frankly. They're just rude. They're, they strong-arm people. They're not gentle with the gospel. They're harsh with the gospel. They don't even extend the call of the gospel. And when I'm telling you, beloved, somewhere I think these truths just run parallel, and you're, at, you're always at the danger of going to one or the other, and you've got to be very careful careful and so this concept of sovereignty and human responsibility produces a tension and it's easy to relieve the tension by so focusing on God's sovereignty that you eliminate human responsibility or you place such priority on human choice that God's sovereignty is compromised Spurgeon again he was once to ask if he could reconcile these two truths to each other he said quote I wouldn't try He replied, I never reconcile friends, end of quote. This is the point we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. As one man said, they are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. Packer went on to explain that this is an antinomy in Scripture, at least an apparent antinomy in Scripture, which is, contradictory principles but they're not they come together but beloved listen you have to deal with this all the time how in the world can jesus be both human and what how can he be both fully god fully deity but fully man and hungry and tired and sleep i don't know i mean who killed jesus i think the jewish people did i think the romans did i think that judas did I think that you and I in our sin did, but God killed him when he was pleased to lift up his son and his servant in Isaiah 53. All those things are true. How in the world would you ever hold Judas accountable for his sin to deliver up the Son of God because he was fulfilling Scripture? And then on the other hand, Jesus said, Woe to that man. It would, have been never, it would have been better if he had never been what? Born. On the one hand, he's fully responsible. And on the other hand, he f- fulfilled scripture. Who lives the Christian life? Do you or God? The answer is what? Yes. He already sanctified you and made you uh, whole in his eyes. But you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So let me just say this. Listen, I want to shepherd you. Some of you are coming out of a system where God's sovereignty You've never heard it. And when I taught on the new birth, it just kind of whacks your system up a little bit because you never heard that he has to breathe life into you to give you life. Well, that's what the scriptures teach. But listen, there's some of you out here who are wound so tight that you'll go to the extreme of God's sovereignty and you'll not recognize the very truths that I brought people to this day. And somewhere in there, beloved, we need to let those truths run parallel together don't try to push one out at the expense of another don't try to even compromise both of them you kind of you kind of merge it over you have to let these truths stand and i'm telling you the older i've gotten the more i've taught the bible the more i have to just recognize these are antinomies in scripture two truths running together and we teach both so if you hear me firm one week on the doctrine of regeneration in 3 1 through 10 praise the lord If you bring somebody on John 3.16, then I'll be evangelistic, you see? And we're going to let the Scripture dictate for us what we ought to believe rather than letting our systems inform every passage of Scripture. Okay, you got it all down? You okay with it going forward? I want you to be content, and I had to get that out before uh, we got into the exposition. This is a classic by... um, J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. You can read in a couple hours. Classic. One of the, my top 10 all time books. And uh, we'll, we'll wrestle with this stuff, okay?